Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. In fact, this month I'll cover three shows on my trips to Warsaw and Prague. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, musical, or theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits I attended in October of 2018. These will include an exciting new musical from the off-Broadway troupe Ars Nova, a much-hyped revival of Oklahoma at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, and another trip to the Two River Theatre Company in Red Bank, New Jersey, for the world premiere of Pamela's first musical. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started. First up is Off Off Broadway's Dixon Place, The title of the piece is Bottom Feeder. Located in the East Village, Dixon Place is an incubator for emerging artists in theater, dance, music, puppetry, and burlesque, to name a few. Bottom Feeder was created by Julia Royce Duray and Lucas Papenfusklein. I hope I said that correctly. The piece concerns itself with garbage, what we throw away. This experimental work registers as a little odd, yet heartfelt in its combination of sincerity and silliness. What do kids today have to say about trash pollution? After a pre-show pantomime where garbage is artistically sorted through movement, a mother and daughter are trying on a wedding gown. The daughter doesn't want her mother's dress, but instead this one made of plastic garbage bags. Another woman with 75 cats reads a poem and then proceeds to tell us that her cat Princess Ying Yang will lead us in communion. That communion is a dance break, both cute and ridiculous. Bottom Feeder is filled with vignettes with varying degrees of success, which comment on the past, present, and future, but vaguely. The tone is less trash-talking and more spiritually resembles a garbage-a-palooza. Not everything in the lineup is as good as the better material, but the performers were committed. At the end of the show, there was another dance break to entertain and leave us exiting on a light note. Dixon Place is always a reliable choice for seeing new works in sometimes very early stages of development. From my seat, Bottom Feeder needed a bit more focus, but portions were inspired gobbledygook. The next play I want to tell you about is High Noon, based on the film of the same name. High Noon is my third visit to Axis Company after Dead End and Evening 1910. This off-off-Broadway venue is a small yet visually expansive space in a basement in Greenwich Village. The set is all white. The floors, the wood walls, the saloon bar, and a platform all the way to the left. The actors emerge wearing superb costumes. Carl Ruxtashell did them. They were in various shades of black and dark gray. 
a famous Academy Award-winning Western film is reinterpreted for the stage. The tension they created was riveting. The story is about a retiring marshal who marries at the start of the play. The townsfolk all hear that a convicted man is out of jail, returning to the town presumably to extract revenge on the marshal. The train is scheduled to arrive at noon. The locale is still a territory in the United States, but lawlessness has been brought under control. The economy, however, is wobbly, and citizens worry about the impact of a devastating event. Concerns also mount from those who have a real reason to fear the train's arrival, like an ex-girlfriend who later became the marshal's ex. Rather than retire and leave town with his new bride, the marshal decides to stay and face the impending gun battle. The actors are on stage for the entire performance, which lasts a little more than an hour. There is continual movement in which the characters ebb and flow into their scenes. The dialogue is crisp and appropriately clipped and melodramatic for the Western genre. Directed by the company's artistic director, Randy Sharp, the impact is stylized, true to the spirit of a Western, yet somehow a dreamscape. Imagine a town where its people are all armed and self-protection is the rule of law, the DNA of the Second Amendment. Tension builds from the storyline, but is theatrically enhanced by the background music and sound effects by Blondie's Paul Carbonara. The actors nicely evoke their characters' varying degrees of nerves fraying amid the rising apprehension as noon approaches. What will happen? You will be grandly entertained and look forward to the next Axis Company production. This troupe has great style. I left the theater feeling rather tense and very impressed. Next, we'll head uptown a little bit to the off-Broadway presentation of the new play, Popcorn Falls. The town of Popcorn Falls has taken a turn for the worse. The famous waterfall has gone dry due to another town upriver that has built a dam. As a result, bankruptcy looms and the mayor is desperate. A town hall meeting is planned with a promised salvation that doesn't materialize. Or does it? Did I mention that this play is a comedy? If there wasn't a crisis and a bunch of kooky townspeople, why would we visit this breezy, lightweight, forgettable place? Written by James Hindman, Popcorn Falls is pleasant theater, but not more. It amuses without being laugh-out-loud funny. By far and away, the best part of the play is that it has been written for two actors. The audience is treated to two actors playing various lovable, wacky, intellectually challenged, yet sincere characters. Adam Heller and Tom Surata are entertaining and earnest throughout. The town decides the way to revive its financial fortunes is to put on a show. The play's mood combines a Mickey Rooney and Julie Garland let's-do-it flair with the dollop of slightly more adult humor. The mega-talented Tony Award-winning actor Christian Borle has directed Popcorn Falls. The plot and characterizations move along efficiently, and the watery, dramatic climax is ingeniously and hilariously staged. The tender... More serious moments, like the mayor's relationship with the recently returned home waitress, well, they feel authentic. The laughs are not frequent enough, however, so the play comes across as a mild diversion, firmly above not good, 
but not recommendable either. For regional and community theaters with audiences that create a nice, unchallenging, rather old-school play, Popcorn Falls allows two actors the opportunity to ham it up and have a ball. Now let's talk about one of Broadway's most famous musicals, Oklahoma, in a revival at the St. Anne's Warehouse. When Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma closed in 1948, it was the longest-running show in Broadway history. Famed for its seamless melding of book, score, and dance, this musical advanced forward the form. Songs defined characters, whether they were soaring ballads or comedic numbers. I had never seen this classic musical performed professionally, so I approached St. Anne's Warehouse excited to see what was billed as a radical and darker reinterpretation. The director, Daniel Fish, is the star of this version, and the musical suffers from his indulgences. Lori Yelenek's set design creates a barnyard dance hall world of all wood. The audience sits on both sides of the action, observing the rather simple story of Lori, played by Rebecca Naomi Jones, who's trying to decide which suitor she will go to a picnic with. There's Cowboy Curly, played by Damien Dono, the hero and real catch, or there's also Farmhand Judd, who was played by Patrick Vale in an intense and excellent performance. For this show to bloom, there has to be more chemistry between Laurie and Curly than was on display. He occasionally sings at the microphone, which is helpful. If you see this show, sit towards the middle. I cannot imagine anyone on the ends of the set could clearly hear these performers. Agnes DeMille's Dream Ballet is famous for showing audiences what was in Laurie's mind about her two suitors. In this, quote, radical reinterpretation, unquote, a singular dancer, Gabrielle Hamilton, wears a white shirt with the words Dream Baby Dream printed on it in capital letters. The dance is long and largely pointless, but there are moments when it focuses on how horny the youngins can be. In this choreography, Laurie's primal urges are displayed by aggressive boot scoots across the floor. Dog owners will recognize the visual. There are some generally fine moments in this show. Mary Testa's Aunt Eller is commanding, and her booming voice needs no amplification. The real core of this Oklahoma, though, was the love triangle between Edo Annie, Will Parker, and Ali Hakim, played by Ali Stroker, James Davis, and Michael Nathanson. Each character shined, and you could feel the sexual tension of young, innocent, and not-so-innocent yearnings. In their scenes, the show blossomed into the bright golden haze I was hoping to see. The lights are turned off more than once, and the book's darker undertones are brought front and center so you cannot miss them. Instead of creating real drama, everyone around me became distracted and bored. No more so than the woman sitting next to me, who at the end of the dream ballet turned to her companion and said, I'm not clapping. Exiting the theater, you could sense the audience was very mixed. For every fabulous, there was a hot mess. In this Oklahoma, the ending was altered and made little sense from the story that came before. For a show famous for its blending of story, song, and dance, that's a fatal flaw. Now let's take a trip to Red Bank, New Jersey, and the Two River Theater Company's production of Pamela's First Musical. 
Based on Wendy Wasserstein's 1996 children's book, Pamela's first musical was supposed to have its world premiere in 2005, but was canceled due to the composer Cy Coleman's death and Miss Wasserstein's illness. All these years later, Two River Theater has produced the world premiere. Christopher Durang co-wrote the book and lyrics were by David Zappel. Graziella Danielle directed and choreographed the show. Big-time Broadway talent signed up to perform. What's it all about? On her 11th birthday, Pamela's in her bedroom play-acting and accepting award for her brilliance. An oddball child bursting with creativity, she mostly keeps to herself. On this very big day, her widowed father decides to tell her the great news that he is remarrying. It is not a very happy birthday. Thankfully, she has an aunt who is fabulous and whisks her away to New York to see her very first Broadway musical. Aunt Louise is played by three-time Tony nominee Carolee Carmelo. She's from Tuck Everlasting, Scandalous, Parade. She has major connections with producers, which leads to a backstage visit with an 11-time Tony-winning star named Mary Ethel Bernadette. If that tickles your funny bone... Pamela's first musical will be a nice, very simple children's show to pass the time. The performers have given this musical a solid showcase. There are funny bits about how impossible it is to make critics happy and the importance of a makeover. None of it is especially inventive, but it does amuse and occasionally delight. Broadway fanatics will enjoy the insider wink-wink risecracks. Those with no affinity for musicals who arrive without children in tow will likely be miserable. In addition to the always welcome Ms. Carmelo, the show is filled with Broadway vets like Howard McGillen, who is one of the longest-running Phantoms and Phantom of the Opera, Andrea Burns, who most recently was in On Your Feet, Mary Callahan from Bandstand, David Garrison, whose Broadway credits include A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine, and a long-running stint on TV's Married with Children, and Michael Mulheran, from Kiss Me, Kate, and Bright Star, well, they all added considerable pedigree to present the best case for Pamela's first musical. Nick Searley's multi-character creations were the most fun to watch and gave the show a needed, yet still sweet, edge. Sarah McKinley Austin was Pamela. I imagine hundreds of little girls, and some boys, went home after the show wishing hers was their story. Next, we have another piece also focused on the kids, and this one I can't wait to tell you about. It's at the tank, and it was called The Amazing Story Machine. Admittedly, I do enjoy puppet shows, and there are some terrific companies playing with the form and creating visually stimulating entertainments these days. I was off later this month, and I'll report on it later in this podcast, to see Don Giovanni at Prague's National Marionette Theater. I can add Doppelscope to the list of troops to keep on my radar. Every weekend in October, they presented The Amazing Story Machine at the Tank, a prolific incubator for artists in New York City. Joy is the feeling these artists bring to the stage. While waiting in the lobby before the show, two young girls approached each other to say hello. I'm five and a half. How old are you? Her response, I'm only five. They are the perfect age for this piece of theatrical wonderment, but it is safe to say the adults in the room seemed equally engaged. On the stage is a handcrafted story machine made from simple objects. 
the four-member cast, with the last name Grimm, tells children's stories with a twist or two. Doppelscope believes that audience participation empowers people to be active participants in the world. The children in the audience were on board. When a planned malfunction happens, Fritz Grimm, played by Christopher Shear, apologizes. He states, this is not the show. A young boy yelled out, yes, it is. A momentary pause. He then turns his head with a mischievous grin and says, no, it's not. The adults roared with laughter and the kids jumped right back in. Yes, it is, they shouted in unison. For a company who believes in the intelligence of children and the whimsy of adults, the moment was perfect. Wrapped up in all of this inspired fun is great messaging. We are all storytellers. We can all make sets and props. We can all entertain and be creative. We can all be active participants. Doppelscope hopes we can all see everyday objects in a new light, full of potential for play. I can only say that I've never, ever enjoyed Hansel and Gretel this much before. After a hideously disconcerting week of the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination debacle and the horrifically disgraceful examples of the truly morally bereft adults that lead our country, I'd like to personally thank this exciting troupe of performers for reminding me that there is good in the world. You just have to tell the story and also show up to see it. People who need people and children and theater are the luckiest people in the world. Okay, okay, you're saying to yourself, enough with the kids' shows. I want to hear about something more adult. All right, let's go to Company 14 and their production of Ferdinand. Subtitled Boylesque Bullfight, Ferdinand is an all-male ensemble piece which fuses a 1936 classic children's tale. Oh no, another children's story, but not really, just wait. Ferdinand takes this classic children's tale and fuses eroticism and decadent panache into it. Despite being one of the largest and strongest bulls, Ferdinand has no interest in bullfighting and would rather smell flowers. In 1938, Monroe's Leaf Books sold more copies than Gone with the Wind to become the number one bestseller that year. In the hands of Company 14, the bulls wear horns, masks, large bull nose rings, a little bit of leather, and heels. The athleticism and choreography are astoundingly good. Theater 14 in Brooklyn is surely the ideal setting for this burlesque extravaganza. The setting is opulent, decadent, and seemingly unearthed from a period somewhere between Moulin Rouge and Cabaret. Drinks are available and are quite good. The environment is elegant, sensual, comfortable, and dingy, with an abundance of chandeliers. In other words, the theater is gorgeously realized for its mission. In the second act, there is a matador. Marcy Richardson is simply spectacular with her aerial act and operatic voice. The entire evening is massively homoerotic, so stay far away if your sensibilities will be assaulted. For the rest of us, the sheer brilliance of the music, dance, and lighting are reasons to run to this show. Ferdinand is stylized, sexy, and jaw-droppingly impressive to watch, whether to ogle the bodies on display or to marvel at their exceptional physicality and movement. 
Ferdinand is a very serious piece of theater, yet playful and giddy as any great burlesque should be. I will be back for their holiday offering, Nutcracker Rouge. Now we'll pause for a story about my theater obsession and the lengths of which I go to attend shows that I want to see. I was traveling home one day and my flight was delayed more than two hours. Thankfully, the pilot told us that we had very strong tailwinds that day, so the plane was expected to land faster than usual. That was fortunate, because I had a 7 o'clock curtain at Ars Nova to see Rags Parkland sings the songs of the future. From the plane, to the monorail, to the train, to the cab, with enough minutes to spare and grab a bevy before taking my seat. Whew! First performed in a 2010 concert version, during Ars Nova's Ant Fest, Andrew R. Butler's musical is now being presented in its world premiere production. Mr. Butler imagines a world 250 years from now. As Rags, he informs us that he has served his time as a prison laborer on Mars and is now back on Earth performing in an undisclosed underground location. Both Andrew and Rags are singer-songwriters. This musical cleverly conjures a future world, and the song lyrics reflect on those times. What's the future like? Here it is filled with outstanding songs expressing themselves amidst a world of love and danger. Imagine folk music played in a Rathskeller, where the audience is a diverse mix of humans, synthetics, and constructed ones. Through dialogue and song, Rags tells us his personal journey, beginning with Apocalypse in Tennessee. He is also singing songs of the future, a band in which he was once a member. The conceit is original, thrilling, topical, and timely. Illegals are not allowed to perform, so this gathering is quite secretive. The Ars Nova space has been ingeniously designed by Laura Yelenick to create an intimate underground environment. That's my second L'Oreal and Accept design this month. All of Rags Parkland would simply be creative and interesting science fiction if the music was not particularly memorable. The tunes are a combination of folk and rock, blues and ballads using a banjo, harmonica, accordion, saxophone, bass, drum, and guitars. The lyrics are poetic and deep, with truly memorable, occasionally haunting storytelling that demands focused listening. Packed with talented performers, the cast is so committed to this show, there is not one second where the futuristic backdrop is winked at or abandoned. As a result, this musical is simply out of this world terrific. I highly recommend finding a strong tailwind and getting yourself to Ars Nova to see Rags Parkland sings the songs of the future. Mr. Butler has a great voice and quite a few things to say. A mirror into the future and a reflection on our times. Wholly unique and effortlessly satisfying, this new musical is a winner on any theatrical planet. Now we're going to give theater reviews from my seat, a little international flair for the first time ever. I took a trip to Poland and to the Czech Republic and decided to check out some theater there. First up, at the Teatro Capital in Warsaw, the name of the piece, When the Cat's Away. Who goes to Warsaw on vacation and books a ticket to see a British sex farce? I do. The Teatro Capital has staged Kiedi Kota Nema, 
I might butcher my Polish, but the translation is when the cat's away. They've staged it in its repertoire in Polish, which is helpfully performed with English supertitles. This play was written by Johnny Mortimer and Brian Cook. They were the pair responsible for a number of popular 1970s British television series, including Man About the House and George and Mildred. In the United States, these comedies also became hits as Three's Company and The Ropers. This play puts George and Mildred Roper on stage in this classic format. The first such farce I saw was Run for Your Wife in London in 1991. There are no standard-issue transvestites in this one, but that could have helped. Silliness is to be expected. Silliness was on display. In the performance I caught, Viola Arlack played Mildred Roper, a woman who was trying to spark some amorous interest in her 25-year marriage to George Roper, who was played by Pieter Cyrus. He'd rather eat pickled onions in bed and avoid her not-so-subtle advances. Mildred surprises him with a trip to France in order to spark some desire which she badly needs. He has no interest in a trip to France, certainly not with his wife. Miss Arlick was my favorite performer, giving a very funny characterization of the exasperated Mildred with the right degree of exaggerated and calculated desperation mixed with a large, large slice of ham. Mr. Cyrus is a gifted physical comedian channeling a slobbishly frigid Gumby-like simpleton. Mildred's sister Ethel comes over to dinner with two suitcases, but without Humphrey, who was nicely played by Jacek Lenartowitz. Apologize for butchering these names. She believes her very randy husband is having an affair with his secretary. Sister Ethel is definitely not interested in her husband's daily lovemaking requirements, which begin when he arrives home from work at 4 o'clock, and end an hour and 40 minutes later when sports come on the telly. What about the weekends, Mildred wants to know? Twice! Needless to say, Mildred is aggressively jealous and humps the couch and other items as proof of that. Two wet fish spouses are married to two middle-aged hormonal sex pots. It's not Shakespeare, but there are laughs. The two ladies wind up going to France together, and Humphrey convinces George to invite his secretary and her suicidal friend out for a double date. Why is she suicidal, you may ask? She's distraught because her boyfriend of four years decided to stay with his wife. Hashtag me too, this play is not. When the cat's away, hashtag the mice will play. Guess who comes home unexpectedly early? This production was a moderately enjoyable diversion. The material is not trap drawer farce, and the pacing could have used more frenetic energy to sell the ridiculously over-the-top comings and goings. The actors did break up laughing at one point, a la The Carol Burnett Show, which the audience clearly loved, as did I. Was that spontaneous or a piece of direction? Who cares? It was fun. Also amusing were some of the English translations. This one elicited a guffaw from me. Quote, For a man facing death, you're fuckingly cheerful. Who knew that the last syllable, L-Y, was a valid option? That's why the theater is so vital. We can learn so much. From Warsaw to Prague and the Zimmerman English Theater, their production of Conquest of the North Pole. Prague has some very interesting attractions for theater lovers. 
The Mucha Museum is a study of the Czech graphic artist Alphonse Mucha, who rose to overnight fame in Paris, designing an Art Nouveau theater poster for an 1894 performance of Gizmonda, starring Sarah Bernhard. That same evening, I saw Billy Rayner perform his stylishly entertaining cabaret act in the Royal Theater, which is an atmospheric 1920s modern-day Kit Kat club. Some nights there is even burlesque show there. Full disclosure required right now. Mr. Rayner is my godson, and his mom is one of my dearest college chums and proprietist of Chez Palmiers, should you be in need of peaceful lodging combined with Basset Hound realness when traveling to New Orleans. Another option for English-speaking theater goers in Prague is the Simmerman English Theater. I caught their production of Conquest of the North Pole. I won't try to pronounce the Czech version. As I've come to learn on this trip, Yara Simmerman was first introduced in a 1966 radio program. A fictional character, his persona was originally meant to be a modest caricature of the Czech people, their history, and culture. Simmerman is so significant that in 2005, the country voted him the greatest Czech, only to have his win disqualified due to, uh, well, well, he's not real. From that fact alone, I expected somewhat edgy insider humor from this particular play. The Yara Simmerman Theater is one of Prague's most frequented houses of the Simmerman canon. The legend is both a major character and a prolific author, quote-unquote author, of a number of plays, books, and films. Mr. Simmerman is also famous for proposing the Panama Canal to the United States and then also writing an opera of the same name. He has a long list of amazing accomplishments, including the invention of yogurt and advising Mendeleev after reviewing a first draft, that the periodic table of elements should be rotated to its current orientation. The play I attended was at the Simmerman English Theater, whose mission is to translate this uniquely Czech cultural icon into another language. In 2017, this troupe toured the United States, introducing this intrinsic part of Czech folklore to Americans, and likely also to expats who were fled after the 1968 Soviet invasion. As is typical in Simmerman plays, the first act takes place in a lecture hall where academics comment on many things, including the story to take place in the following act. The devotion to Simmerman and the lines of his plays are revered, similarly to Monty Python, where people can recite the words verbatim. Act two tells the story of four men in a cold water swimming club who decide, without any knowledge or preparation, to conquer the North Pole in 1908. As you might imagine, some silliness then ensues. The sold-out audience with whom I attended Conquest of the North Pole laughed a great deal. I chuckled as well, but not as often, nor as heartily. Perhaps there is an element of Czech experience from this outrageous icon that is truly native to their culture. The play itself felt like our television show Saturday Night Live. There were funny bits, slower bits and a loose, entertaining quality to the staging. However, as a visitor to this country, writing a blog on the weekend of its 100th anniversary of independence, I could readily understand and identify with the oft-repeated tagline that Czechs are, quote, adaptable. After a century of invasion and control by the Germans and then the Soviets, adaptability would seem necessary for survival. 
I feel fortunate to have learned about this fascinating persona and briefly experienced its mystique after five decades of influence within the Czech culture. Since we don't really know if Cimarron is an American for sure, birth certificate controversy pending, perhaps as Americans, we can also be adaptable and adopt him for the intellectual and moral void sorely missing from our current governmental leaders. Perhaps we also need Zimmerman to rebloom the humanitarian essence of our national values. After all, isn't it remarkable that when Alexander Graham Bell introduced the telephone, he found three missed calls from Zimmerman upon making his first connection? As promised earlier, now it's time for another puppet show. This time in the Czech Republic, Prague's National Marionette Theater and their famous production of the opera Don Giovanni. In 1787, Mozart debuted Don Giovanni in Prague, a city he loved and one that loved him back. The National Marionette Theater has been staging its version of this opera since 1991. As an admirer of the craft of puppetry, I wanted to experience a world-famous marionette troupe and also see how this piece could be staged as a family-friendly entertainment. The Don, after all, sings about his conquests of women as follows. 640 in Italy, 231 in Germany, 100 in France, 91 in Turkey, and an impressive 1,003 in Spain. He sings Madamina il Catalogue Questo, which translates as, My dear lady, this is the catalog. The company does not shy away from the material. On stage, this chronicle is depicted with banners which flow down from the puppeteers onto the stage and feature classic images of women as in paintings. The whole opera is abbreviated, but the general plotline is followed. Two of the ladies Don Giovanni woos the most are puppets that vaguely reminded me of Celine Dion and Cher. Mozart conducted the premiere of Don Giovanni. In this show... His marionette is exaggeratedly kooky. The creatives developed a number of very funny bits for this musical genius, including a drunken episode prior to an onstage party scene. For the record, I am not an opera fan, and I became bored through much of the first act once the novelty of watching clunky, large wooden puppets move around the stage to a reasonably nicely performed soundtrack. I was not alone. About half the audience left at intermission. Only one of the puppets seemed to possess a moving mouth. The rest sort of bounced around while quote-unquote singing. The movement of walking was loud as wooden shoes clomped on a wooden stage. When choreography happened, the effect was clog dancing gone wild. Years ago, I saw the Salzburg Marionette Theater's production of The Sound of Music, which was breathtaking in its technical proficiency and set design. This show felt primitive by comparison. Perhaps this was a historically true-to-form representation of this type of marionette production. The second act was far superior to the first, which was a shame for those individuals unwilling to stick around. The scenes were more cleverly executed, such as the graveyard of the Commendadore, with more pointed humor and a nice surprising finale. I cannot recommend this Don Giovanni, however. When half the audience leaves during the interval and more escape throughout the second act, there can be no adjective to describe the production 
other than to call it wooden. For our last conversation on today's podcast, another entry from the retrospective series. One of my favorite musicals of all time is On the 20th Century, with book and lyrics by the legendary team of Betty Comden and Adolph Green. They wrote On the Town, the movie Singing in the Rain, the Will Rogers Follies. Cy Coleman, who wrote Sweet Charity and City of Angels, composed the lush operatic-like score of On the 20th Century. The original 1978 production won five Tony Awards, including for lead actor John Cullum and featured actor Kevin Kline. The show also won for its book, score, and art deco set design by Robin Wagner. Directed by Hal Prince, he described the set of On the 20th Century as the favorite of all the musicals he staged. Set in the 1920s aboard a luxury train, the show was based on a play and film of the same name. The musical is perhaps best classified as screwball romantic comedy farce. For this entry into the retrospective series, I viewed two tapings at the New York Public Library's Theater on Film and Tape archive. The first was 15 minutes of excerpts from the post-Broadway 1979 road tour in Chicago, with Rock Hudson replacing John Cullum in the lead. Many from the Broadway cast were on this taping, including Judy Kay, who later was a Tony winner for Phantom of the Opera, and Imogene Coca. Mr. Hudson was a passable singer, but seemed to be a fun stage presence. The second taping I watched was on May 27, 2015, during the first Broadway revival with Kristen Chenoweth, famous from Wicked, obviously, and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which nabbed her a Tony. This version that I saw confirmed my earlier memories that this show in its entirety is one of the musical comedy greats. Madeline Kahn opened the show during the original run, but quickly began missing performances and Judy Kay took over in the part as a real-life understudy getting to be the star. On the cast album, Ms. Kahn is typically hilarious, with a beautiful voice, and her version of Lily Garland comes across brilliantly as almost self-parody. Kristen Chenoweth seemed more aggressively driven as Lily, with every minute on stage venturing between musical comedy perfection and gorgeously sung introspection. It was a bravura performance on every level. New York in 16 Hours, Anything Can Happen in Those 16 Hours, proclaims the title song of On the 20th Century. With a John Barrymore flair, stage director Oscar Jaffe, that was John Cullum and Rock Hudson, and in this version, a scintillating Peter Gallagher, well, Oscar Jaffe has just closed another failed theatrical production out of town in Chicago. He hears that his former discovery, ex-lover, and now Hollywood star Lily Garland, will be on the train. With his minions, he plots to get her to sign a contract to revive his career. As can be expected, there are a slew of quirky characters adding to the larger-than-life leads singing bombastic and witty songs. Jokes are everywhere in this score. Oscar's opening number, I Rise Again, in which he announces he's full-size again, and that song gets the plot machinations in motion. Recollecting his discovery of Mildred Plotka sets the stage for her first triumph as renamed star Lily Garland in the character of Veronique, 
whose spurning of Otto von Bismarck's sexual advances precipitate the Franco-Prussian War. In this number, Comden and Green's lyrics equally combine literary and lowbrow humor. Quote, She closed the door, she start the war, she won't say yes, won't lift her dress. Unquote. All of this is done in Mr. Coleman's operatic throwback style. In the revival, Miss Chenoweth equally combines her natural go-for-the-jugular humor along with her spectacularly big and rich vocals. Lily has a boy toy with her on the train. With his brutal thighs, the character of Bruce Granite won a Tony Award for Mr. Klein in the original and a nomination for Andy Carl in the revival. In both versions, they stop the show with narcissism and precision physical comedy. As a religiously inclined Letitia Primrose, the legendary Imogene Coca had the role of a lifetime with the comedic masterpiece Repent. She knows there's dirty doings going on. Act two, She's a Nut, was complete with a series of onstage moving trains. The original even had a full-size engine barreling straight toward the audience. The revival was not nearly as grandiose, but still very good. The train motif and clickety-clack score keep the proceedings rolling along until the very end. The overture, best represented on the original cast recording, is probably my all-time favorite. The two-disc recording of this revival, however, is much longer, with much more detail, providing a great opportunity to experience the show, its witticisms, and gorgeous score. One of the many peaks of this musical is Act Two's Babette. Lily is deciding between two roles, Mary Magdalene and Babette. Mary sings, Our sins shall be forgiven, while Babette laments that the gin is never strong enough. Back and forth between the two diametrically opposed characters results in My cigarette is saved. Babette loves her loving, boozing, dancing, cruising. There is all of that and more in On the 20th Century, an exquisitely constructed, gleamingly elegant exercise in Broadway musical comedy genius. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. November is going to be chock full of Broadway plays, including Janet Mateer in Bernhardt Hamlet, Jez Butterworth's new one, The Ferryman, The Waverly Gallery, and The Lifespan of a Fact, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Cherry Jones, and Bobby Cannavale. I'm looking forward to catching up. I'm a little behind on my play going on Broadway. And I'm really looking forward to the musical King Kong, based on the 1933 film it should be interesting to see how we musicalize and stage that. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Take care and enjoy your theater going. <laughs>